0: Thank you for your patience, uh, and, and I have some good news. We were able to figure something out for this morning so that we are actually one with the people online. So welcome to our worship, yeah. For those of you who are gathered online, we're glad that we are, you were able to see me at least, but hear that there is some applause, there's some celebration here in the room that you could be here with us online. And so uh, this is, this, I hope you know, this really makes my heart very happy. I know that there has been much that has driven us apart as a people in our world, not just as Christians, but like our world, right? And uh, man, my heart beats to be uh, pursuing that unity in Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, my heart was lifted when I could see some of you face to face. Uh, It's lifted when I think about the fact that we can be together online and in person. We're finding creative ways to maintain that unity, to pursue it, to keep it as a goal. But I hope you all agree with me on this that our time of worship is central to that, right? In our worship of God, he shapes our hearts. He, 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 he conforms our passions and desires to his. And, and really, it's our worship of the Lord, our worship of God. And so uh, as, we, as we enter into this time of worship, uh, I know that we're a couple minutes behind starting. And so I want to just invite you, I know you've already been quieting your hearts in this quiet room, but uh, I want to invite you to quiet your hearts around the word of God. That the greatest invitation we can have is to turn to the Word of God, which gives us life, which, which gives us new beginnings, which when we allow to wash over us, transforms us. And so I want to read a passage from the, the Gospel of John, the very beginning part of the, the Gospel of John, which focuses on the life of Jesus. And I want you just to quiet your hearts and to, to think about the reason you're here today, to, to be here for Jesus Christ. To be here and to receive from the Lord, from his word, what is most meaningful and true, which is life in Jesus Christ. So listen as I read for us from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I'm going to pick up in verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them coming and said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. This is the word of God.
1: God of creation There at the start Before the beginning of time the ball
2: chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them.
3: In a short prayer, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his humility and love. Please help us to pursue humility and love as well. And please let Jesus be our guide and our strength. Amen.
0: Thank you, George and Meg, for that. We. Uh... You know, it's, it's nice that we can serve together, we can worship together. That's actually what liturgy means. It means the work of the people, and the work of the people is to worship together, worship the Lord together. And so uh, what, a, what a blessing it is that we can, we can serve it, the Lord together in that way. Well, this morning, if I were to say to you that we're going to be taking our shoes off in a moment and washing one another's feet, what do you imagine the feeling might be in the room? I actually, I'm guessing between 75 and 80 percent of the room would get up and walk out at that point I'm pretty sure people would feel pretty uncomfortable with this idea of, of washing one another's feet Why? Because our feet are dirty Not just worried about what other people's feet are We're worried about our feet Our feet are dirty that, that, you know, they're, they're very important parts of the body They get us to where we need to go But in the process of getting us from point A to point B They get dirty And, and we don't like that at all It makes us uncomfortable Well, you know what? There are some things that just don't change throughout history. Because even as we think about feet being dirty today and making us uncomfortable to even think about washing someone else's feet, uh, the reality was that back in the times of the Bible, the ancient Near East, feet were still considered to be a dirty thing. Right? They, They actually had... Customs that that were followed about washing your feet as you came into someone else's house. In, in Luke seven, uh, we're, we're told a story of when Jesus goes to dine at a, a Pharisee's house, Simon's house. And, and Simon welcomes him into his house, and they're sitting there having a meal. And this woman of the city uh, comes to, to uh, she hears that Jesus is there, and she just starts weeping over knowing who he is in, in his ministry. And, and she starts weeping. Her tears are, are on Jesus' feet, and she's wiping his feet clean with her hair. And, and, and Simon goes, oh, my goodness. If this man were really what he says he is, he would know who this woman is and who's touching his feet right now right, but but Jesus doesn't doesn't you know kind of say, "Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, she shouldn't be touching my feet right now." Jesus actually admonishes Simon. Why? Because there's a custom that when you go into someone else's house, the host is meant to offer a basin of water for you to wash your feet in, right? Recognizing that you know the the, the travels of the day in the dry, dusty climate of of, of the ancient Near East. Uh, would have gotten your feet really dirty when you welcome someone into your house you offer them a, a basin of water to wash their feet in but Simon didn't do that and Jesus calls attention to that he, he says you know you don't even offer me a basin of water and this woman washes my feet with her tears and her hair there, there's a reality that, that washing someone's feet held something of significance in the culture of Jesus' day feet were still a messy thing they made people uncomfortable. Washing another's uh, foot or feet was, was a lowly act. It was even considered to be too humbling of an act for a, a slave to partake in. No one would argue that our feet are dirty, right? I mean, I would agree if, if, you, if you consider why that makes you uncomfortable to think that I'm about to call you up here on stage and, and wash your feet or yeah, I wouldn't make you wash my feet. I would wash your feet. Uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, then you have to acknowledge the fact that it's most likely because you acknowledge that feet are dirty, right? But why is it that we struggle to acknowledge the, the reality, not just that our feet are dirty, but our souls are dirty too? I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think we'd all say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but we would follow that up with, but I'm not a bad person, Right? Or we would, we, would, we would fall into the trap of comparison, right? I mean, I'm not that bad of a person if you look at this person over here, right? We, we struggle to really acknowledge, to focus on the fact that regardless of what's going on in that person's life or, or, or the good that we've done in our life, we, we don't like to acknowledge the fact that it's our souls that are dirty. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he's communicating something very important to his audience. He's communicating something very important, not just to his audience, but to his disciples, who he was speaking with in that very moment as they gathered around the table the night before he was to be crucified. And here's the thing. If we read this passage, if we read John chapter 13 too prescriptively, then we're going to miss out on the, the, the important truth that Jesus calls our attention to. In other words, if we are too quick to turn this passage into a do-as-I-do passage, then we're going to miss out the, the, the true fruit of, of, of understanding what Jesus has called us to embrace and to understand. We're going to leapfrog right over the, the deep meaning that Jesus offers in showing us what it means, what it looks like to wash another's feet. In verse 12, Jesus says, do you understand what I have done to you? It's... It's actually not the first time that he's said that in the passage, which means we should draw our attention to the fact that Jesus has now said for a second time in under 15 verses, you don't understand what's going on here, right? Earlier in verse 7, he says to Peter, uh, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will understand afterward. Right? Peter, Peter's all worked up because he's not going to have Jesus, his, his master, his Lord, his Savior, he's not going to have him wash his feet. That's too lowly of a job for him to do. But Jesus is like, listen, you don't get it right now. You will someday. You will after I'm done, but you're not getting it right now, Peter. For Peter, there was no way he could allow this powerful, mighty man to do such a lowly task. But, but the problem is, for Peter, he didn't understand what kind of Savior Jesus was. See, for Peter, his idea of greatness was to be above the, the, above the others, above the culture, above society. He was to be held up high and lofty. But God's idea of greatness was something very different. They held two very different concepts of greatness. This morning, I want you to ask the question of yourself. Do you understand what Jesus was doing when he washed his disciples' feet? Do you understand, not not just like do you know what he did, but do you understand what Jesus was doing when he washed his disciples' feet the night before he was to be crucified? See, I think it has a lot more to do with the life of a Christian than just learning how to be a servant. See, the foot-washing event in the Gospels models for us what it means to live the Christian life. We're not wrong there. We're not wrong to look at this story and see an example of what it looks like to walk in Christianity, to follow Jesus, to live like Jesus, but we oftentimes overlook the fact that it pointed to the means by which we can actually follow Jesus. It points to the the means by which we can live this Christian life, and it has nothing to do with what we've accomplished or whether or not we wash another person's feet. John tells us in verses 2 through 5 of John 13, See, the foot washing is this enacted sermon illustration. I mean, it's not; it wouldn't be completely out of bounds for me to wash someone's feet up here as an illustration of a deeper truth. And I think what Jesus was doing here in this passage was he was showing us a deeper truth about who he was and what he's come to do. But oftentimes... We've misinterpreted this, or, or maybe just not fully interpreted it. Maybe that's a better way to say it. We, we, we read verse 15, which says, You also should do as I have done to you. And we build foot washing ceremonies into our worship services. We, we, build, uh, we build whole worship services around the central act of washing people's feet. And we do it because that's what Jesus told, told us to do, right? Wrong. I, let me rephrase that. It's not wrong that people wash one another's feet in worship. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful picture of what it means to serve. But Jesus was pointing to a deeper truth. So if we think that we're just, just doing the, the washing of another's feet is enough, well, then we're missing the point. To understand the passage as an instruction just to, to do this, and somehow that makes you a good Christian, is missing the deeper truth. It's missing the fact that there's a treasure beneath the soil. It's like a treasure hunter who stops digging at the surface because they found some quartz crystals, not knowing that if they were to dig deeper, they'd find the real treasure. They'd find the gold. See, I want us to dig down deep for the whole treasure. Not, not just because, not, not just the example of how we're called to live as Christians as Jesus lays out for us, but, but also to understand the means by which we can actually follow Jesus. That we can actually be enabled to walk with God, to live in the, the relationship with God that we've been created for. And I think that is what Jesus points us to in this passage. In John 13:10, Jesus is talking to Peter who's refusing the chance to wash his feet, as I mentioned. And, and, and keep in mind, Peter doesn't actually know what's going on here, right? I mean, Jesus has already made that point a couple times, but. But he says, you don't even get it. You'll know someday. You'll know when it's done. But you don't get it right now. See, Peter thinks we're talking about feet here. But Jesus is talking about our souls. Jesus is talking about the cleansing of our souls. When Peter thinks, well, wait a minute. You know, go ahead, Jesus. If you're going to wash my feet, let's not make it such a humble, lowly act. Go ahead and wash my whole body. But Jesus isn't talking about physically washing us. He's talking about spiritually washing us from the inside out. So in 1310, when Jesus says to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, he's really talking about the depth of his disciples' soul, what it means to to cleanse us from the inside out. So by washing their feet, Jesus is illustrating outwardly this inward reality that he is accomplishing, that he has accomplished, that his words have accomplished in their lives. I don't have this on the screen, but in John 15, 3, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. God's word, Jesus' word, his teaching, is what cleanses us in our soul. And so Jesus' point is to say, listen, I care more about the, the cleansing within your soul than, than that of your body. So don't miss that point. Earlier in the gospel, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he, he tells Nicodemus that, that if we're to be born into God's family, we need to be born of spirit and water. In other words, we're born at the working of God's hand that results in the cleansing of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins, it's born into the family of God in such a way that the, the 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 guilt and the shame that we subtly and quietly and carry deep within, or we try to stuff down and ignore, uh, gets dealt with only by the hand of God through Jesus Christ. Now, think about this for a moment. You can't give birth to yourself, correct? I, you can't you can't decide uh, it's time I'm going to come out. It's 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 time for me to be born. Being born is something that happens to you. This is the the Spirit's work. It's it's the regeneration of our soul, and it's only done by the the hand of God at work in the lives of people. Now, I imagine there are many moms that can attest to this right here and now. A baby is not responsible for being born. That work is all on the mama and her body. Now, I get it, guys. I'd like to give you guys some credit here too, but, but that's, let's be real for a minute. I'd get in trouble if I tried to take any credit for any of my children being born. So I'm not. I'm going to avoid that because I love my wife. But our spiritual work in the same way is the work of God's hand. You know, we, we, don't, we don't accomplish it, right? It, it wasn't our death on the cross that, that, that satisfies the wrath of God, that, that, that deals with our sin and not just kind of puts it behind us, but actually wipes it clean, it was the work of God who accomplishes that. Our spiritual birth is the work of of God, of his Holy Spirit. But Jesus also says that it's the the born of spirit and and water. What is that? What What does he mean by that? Growing up every month or so, when I was getting stinky, my mom would say, Dan, go take a bath, right? Same with my kids. Every uh, month or so when they start getting stinky, I say, hey guys, go, go take a bath. Go take a shower. It's time, right? But, but hear me when I say this. No matter how many baths we take that clean the outside of our body, none of these baths will cleanse the depth of our soul. None of them will address the, the guilt and the shame, the pain, the, the, the woundedness that we feel within, within us. The effect of sin in our soul. The reality is... What Jesus is pointing to is that knowing his crucifixion is the next day, that that his disciples need to understand that that it's Jesus' death and resurrection which truly cleanses our soul. It's his word, his life, his teaching, his sacrifice, his love and obedience of the Father that accomplishes what, what only he can accomplish. Theologians, we call this uh, the atonement, right? The, the, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the, this, this sacrifice that, that God makes on our behalf. It's the, the work of God on a sinner's behalf to reconcile them to him. To give them this right standing in God's presence. To fix what is broken so there's no longer this separation between God and man. Between God and those he created and loved and desired to walk with in the peace of the garden. Now to understand what Jesus has done on our behalf requires that we understand some of the truths that we do affirm in the Bible. the, The truth that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can measure up to God's standard of holiness. None of us can measure up to God's standard of, uh, of perfection, not in perfection like bodily perfection, but in perfection of our soul, perfection of our inmost being. See, we can't be like we were as kids when, when you break your parents' lamp while you're having a pillow fight, and then when they walk and you say, I didn't do it, or, or point to your brother or your sister and say, they did it, it's their fault. Right? We, we, can't, we can't point the blame elsewhere. We can't say, well, they made me angry, and so it's their fault that I lost control of my temper. We, we, we have to acknowledge the sin within ourselves. We have to acknowledge the brokenness, the, the pride, the, the insecurity, the, the shame that we carry within us. And we, we do so recognizing we can't, we can't wash it away. No matter how many baths we take or showers we take, we can't wash that guilt and shame away. We've all tried it, but lying about our guilt doesn't reconcile that that shame and the guilt and the weight we carry within, right? The reason is that our problems don't originate in the outer world, in the physical world. They originate in our souls, and they're manifested in the physical world. So, you and I are spiritual and emotional beings as well as physical, but our, our, our outward sins are the manifestation of something going on deep inside of us. Kids, you, you probably are, are faced with it more often as parents discipline you or, or, or try to help guide you along the way. You recognize those moments where you get angry and lose your, your temper. You, you recognize those moments where you know you've done something wrong, but you don't want to, you don't want, you, you hmm. <laughs> you give a half answer to mom and dad because you don't want them to really know what you did, right? Well, guess what, kids? The adults are no different than you, right? We do the same thing. We just are better at covering it up. We're just better at, at rationalizing it and making it sound like it's justified. And the reality is we can't fix these problems which we come to realize are real in our lives. And we don't have to be ashamed because I want you to look around this room and recognize... You're not worse than the person next to you, or behind you, or in front of you, or sitting kitty-corner from you. We all wrestle with the reality of sin. Sin is a present reality in all of us, and as being dealt with by God. It has been defeated by Jesus, and it's being worked out in our lives as the Holy Spirit cleanses us from the inside out. The problems that we face can't easily be fixed by gluing that lamp that we broke back together or, or buying a new lamp. This is called restitution. It's not called justice, right? It's, it's just trying to replace what we've done and, and, and hopefully kind of satisfy the guilt that we feel for doing something wrong. But justice is not restitution. Restitution may be involved in justice, but justice, as we look at it in the Old Testament, was this balance right? It was life for a life. It was this, actually in the ancient Near East, it was the pouring out of blood which symbolized a life given to restore a life, right? That's what the, the root of the sacrifices is, this, this pouring out of an animal sacrifice that, that would give life to those who were or symbolizing giving life to those who would sacrifice the animal on their own behalf. See, this is the idea that's at the heart of God's relationship with people, his people. In Egypt, when Israel painted their doors with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, death saw that as payment enough. It was the death of the sacrificial lamb on their behalf, so death passed over their houses, right? The Bible tells us that that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And, and forgiveness is what we need. Forgiveness is not just saying, Oh, good, they accepted my apology. Forgiveness is a is a deeply spiritual work. One that that it that, that it's hard to give and it's hard to receive. But but rest assured, this is not just a simple, I'm sorry. It is a profoundly spiritual reality that we all hunger for and need. Think of it like a scale. Right, we've got the scale uh, on, up on the screen. Our sin upset the balance. When, when, we, when God created us in the garden, he, he walked with us in the, in the peace of the garden, and we were even with him, not in, in authority or power, but, but walking with him in peace, in a balanced lifestyle of, of shalom. But then sin enters the world, and that scale gets askew. And try as we may, we, we cannot balance that scale out ourselves. There is a payment that needs to be made that, that, that puts weight on one side of the scale to balance it back out again, to, to, make us, to, to bring us to that place of standing in God's righteousness face-to-face with him and walking with him in the peace that he created us for. So, so here's the thing. So when Jesus tells Peter here in John 13, you do not understand what I'm doing, but you will understand afterward, he didn't mean when I'm done washing your feet. Jesus didn't mean you're, you're going to understand what I'm doing when I'm done washing your feet. Jesus meant you will, you will understand what I'm doing when I hang on that cross and cry out, it is finished. When you understand that, that the, the sacrifice I make is a sacrifice that balances that scale out to, to, to make you measure up to God's standard of righteousness and, and perfection. Right, The atonement is is a gift that's given on our behalf. It's a a thing that was done on our behalf that balances out that scale so that we can be in a relationship with God. And by Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, he's saying, hey, listen up. What I do, you do not understand, but you will when I'm done. My sacrifice is necessary that you might have life with God again. That you might be cleansed in the depth of your soul. He's not washing their feet. He's pointing to the fact that his sacrifice on the cross is the thing that washes the depth of their being. Listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his, his wounds, you have been washed and cleansed. By his wounds, the, that scale has been balanced out. The means by which we can live life with God, that we can be in that balanced relationship of walking in the peace that God intended for us, is by the cleansing, substitutionary death of Jesus in our place, so that we can live to righteousness and peace. I don't know about you, but doesn't peace sound good right now? <laughs> in the year that we're living in, you know, as the season we're going into with, with the election and all that, as we think of what we've come through already, I mean, we look out at our world and we're like, man, yeah, I'm struggling to see anything of peace out there. But that's not the kind of peace that Jesus offers us. He offers us a peace in here. A steadiness of soul that, that says, regardless of what's going on in there, I have settled the storms within you and given you hope and a future. And that hope and that future is only found through that substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus is the means for the Christian life. But he's also the, the, the way uh, in the life. He's a model for the Christian life. And it's important for us to, to understand this. That it's not the Christian life is not just literally do what Jesus did. His invitation is not to literally wash one another's feet. Although it can be done in a very beautiful way to symbolize a relationship. His invitation is to walk in the model of, of, of Jesus' life. Listen to what he says in verses 15 to 17 of John 13. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I believe, and this is subtle, it's a subtle difference, but I believe Jesus gave us an example of how to be, not what to do, right? The, the, Jesus gave us an example of, of who to become, not what actions to take. The, the Greek word here in the passage is hupodegma, right? It, means to a, uh, it refers to a pattern or a copy or a model for us to live our lives after, right? Uh, we, I sometimes joke with some of the, the people in the office, um, that, that they used to use this thing called a ditto machine before I was born. It was kind of like this thing where you you, you copy uh, papers, and, and and I never even—I mean, I don't—never mind, I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> Jesus is an example for us. Jesus is a model for us to live after. i got to get back on track here. Um, and, and so here's, here's what I want us to do with the remaining time we have. I want to outline— the, the shape of Jesus' love. I want us to outline the, the, the contours of, of the model of life that Jesus lays out for us. Because he's not telling us, hey, Dan, just, just wash this person's feet. By the way, I can't do the things that Jesus did if he's calling me just to do them, right? I, I, he, he's a miracle worker. I'm a recipient of his miracles, right? But what I can do is I can become like Jesus in character, and so let's just take a look at the contours of Jesus' character that he invites us into in this passage. First of all, I think that Jesus' love is humiliating. Now, I don't mean that it's embarrassing. I mean it's the sort of love that, that causes us to descend downward rather than to pursue a, a ascending upward toward greatness and acknowledgement and, and, and recognition. Jesus' love is humiliating. Now, Jesus is their, their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's, he's not supposed to be getting down on his hands and feet and washing their feet, right? Jesus is called to, to, to or they're, they're thinking, Jesus is this great and holy leader. We do the work for him. We protect him. We, we, we make sure he doesn't have to do any of those lowly acts in the eyes of others. But instead, Jesus gives us an example, but by humiliation... He shows us what his love looks like. See, for Jesus, his love models this downward direction of glory rather than an upward and opposite climb of achievement. Now, I think that this is a genuine struggle for us as Christians, right? Abstract from our own personal lives for a moment, when you think about the life of Christianity, when you think about who represents Christianity, we typically think of, you know, Christian superstars or, or people that we would... Uh, characterizes Christian superstars. We think of uh, Tim Keller or Andy Stanley or John MacArthur, all who are great teachers, but they're not the ones that we are called to imitate as leaders, as spiritual leaders. You know, they hope to be imitating the character of Christ themselves. But if we look at these leaders and we think, "Man, that's that's what I need to be more like. I gotta I, I gotta behave more like." Uh, Andy Stanley or Beth Moore, whatever. Then we lose sight of the fact that we've not been called to imitate greatness in our culture's eyes. We've been called to imitate this downwards, this downward path of humiliation, to to live our lives in obscurity. But not just obscurity in terms of separation from one another, but that the very acts of our lives, the 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 things we do don't need to be we don't need to post them on the internet and let them know what we're doing. We just merely need to do them out of love for others to to their, our service towards others in obscurity. See in Luke's gospel account of the Last Supper, he tells us this interesting story that, that this is this is a reality even for Jesus' disciples because as they gather around that table, a fight breaks out. And the fight breaks out when the disciples start arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, guys, you're getting it wrong. Let me show you what, the greatness, what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And so he takes his robe and he sets it aside. He wraps a towel around his waist. He takes a basin of water and he goes around and starts washing the feet of his disciples. Right? The example that Jesus shows us is not uh, the greatest as we would think, but the greatest in the kingdom of God is one that is found through uh, a humiliating love, a servanthood where we humble ourselves out of love for others. Now, I also think that he models for us an unconditional love in his servanthood. The contour of of Jesus' love, the, the shape of his character is one of unconditional love towards others, right? I'm just gonna, again, touch on this for a moment, but tell me as I read through the list of, of disciples who are at the supper uh, and whose feet people, uh, Jesus washed, tell me if you're surprised by anything here. We, we uh, have a, 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 what I understand is an authentic image of what the disciples looked like back in those days. There was Simon Peter. There was Andrew. There was James, there was John, there was Philip, there was Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, James, again, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. Now, is there a name in all of those, those uh, disciples that were gathered there at the Last Supper, is there a name that stands out to you? I got one. How about Judas? The, the one who would betray Jesus for some money. The, the one who Jesus knew would betray him, right? Right? Jesus was aware of what was going on here. He knew what was about to happen. He basically calls Judas out at the dinner and says, go and do what you've set yourself to do, right? In that moment, as Jesus goes around the table, I wonder what the interaction was like when Jesus got to Judas, when when he bent down and, and, and wet his feet and began to wash them, knowing what Judas was about to do. Jesus' love was not conditioned on those who obeyed him and those who didn't. Jesus' love was unconditional. Friends, I wonder what our love, the, what the contours of our love, what the contours of our servanthood has looked like this year. What, what, what the... the, the characterization of our servanthood has has looked like as we've faced this year i know it's not so easy i know it's not as as simple and black and white as i make it seem but i wonder if our love is unconditional as jesus's was there in the upper room when he washed the feet of judas among the other eleven lastly I, i just want to point out that Jesus lays out this unending and eternally faithful love for us in in the first verse of john chapter 13 john tells us when jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to return to the father he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end now, I think that sometimes this can be a little bit of a misleading translation because what Jesus is say, or what John's saying here is Jesus didn't love his disciples until his life ended. He loved them to the fullest measurement of love. If you have a measurement stick and it goes from zero to a hundred, he's saying Jesus's love was to a hundred on that measurement stick. He fully loved them. He didn't love them part of the way. He loved them to the extent of love, by washing his disciples' feet, Jesus showed his love is eternally faithful. It's not part of the way. It's not incomplete. It's complete. He loved them to the end. Now, I think the example that Jesus has set for us is a servanthood, a loving servanthood that's characterized by humility and, and eternally faithful and unconditional love love. This does not need to be epitomized in washing another's feet. This can be enacted as we, as we make way for someone to join us at worship, as we, as we wear our mask, even if we don't like wearing our mask, but we do so because it makes the other feel safe. As we, as we spend some of our personal time that was supposed to be vacation time or rest time to, to listen to someone who's broken and hurting, who's, who, who, who's feeling rejected. There are ways that we can love others way beyond the physical act of washing one another's feet. Here's the thing, church. We lift our voices, we raise our hands in praise of Jesus for for humbly leaving heaven, for coming to this earth, for taking the form of a servant and dying on a cross for us. We say praise God for that love. But the question that, that follows that is how quick are we to turn around and give that love away? I'm not asking you to die on a Roman cross this morning, but I am asking you to, to kind of ask that question, what do the contours of my love look like? If I were to hold my life up against Jesus' love and the example he gives us, where would it, what would my life look like? Would it measure alongside his love? See, Jesus drew near to the disciples' filthy feet to wash them. He, he wasn't repulsed by their dirty feet. I, I probably would have I don't like messes when, when, when uh, we play with things like that molding sand which they say doesn't spread out and get messy but it gets messy when our kids play with Play-Doh or, or shaving cream, Miss Donna loves to do this. She'll, she'll break out shaving cream on the table just to see me, like, shivering and go into the fetal position. But, but the thing is, I, you know, be, I don't like messes, but somehow Jesus draws near to us in our own mess. Jesus drew near to my filth. He drew near to my mess. He didn't shun me or, or, or be, he wasn't repulsed by me. He wasn't, you know, saying, stand back, Dan, you're too, you're too gross and dirty. Go take a bath first. He drew near to me, and he cleansed my soul. That's what the atonement is. Jesus drawing near to us in our filth and our mess, in our guilt and our shame and our pride and our insecurity and our anger and our condescension. He drew near to us in that place, and he cleansed what we cannot cleanse apart from his death and resurrection. So can't we do that for others in in their messes? Can we we sacrifice our own rights, our own needs for the sake of another so that they might experience the love of God in Christ Jesus? That maybe as we draw near to them in their mess, they might see Christ in us and experience the eternal and divine love of God. See, the Christian life is a life of humiliation. It's a life that's lived counterculturally to the Counterculturally to the world that we're living in right now. It's not this upward path towards achievement, but a downward journey toward death to ourselves that we might live to God's righteousness and peace. And it's all made possible by Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross. His, his death and resurrection that cleanses the guilt within us and makes us holy and righteous. Let me close with these words from Paul to the church in Philippi. Listen closely to how, how, how Paul speaks to them of Jesus. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let me pray. Father, this morning, I I thank you uh, for both the means and the model that we have in Jesus Christ The means to live the Christian life. That you have opened the door to make a way for us to walk with you again through your son Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for accepting his sacrifice on our behalf. And thank you for accepting us in light of him. Empower us, Lord, to walk in the example that Jesus sets not just to enact an illustration for one another, but to actually become these people who love unconditionally, who, who hold to this eternally steadfast love, and whose love is complete for others. Lord, may, may, may we become a people who lay down our own concerns our, uh, to, to make other people's interests more important than our own to live in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live boldly in the fact that we have been washed clean. And so we are now able to follow your model, to follow Jesus, to live like him, to become like him in our loving servanthood of others. Thank you for sending us your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. How many of
3: you, like me, shuddered at the word humiliating. Jesus' love is humiliating. My personal heart and soul was like, not for me, and I no way, I'm not gonna be humiliated. Like that's I could feel that. Every time Dan said it, I was just like, ugh, uh, I hate that. I don't like that word. I don't want to be humiliated. And I was trying to figure out why that is. And I was trying to imagine this conversation with all the disciples at the table. You know, some of them are, we got multiple sets of brothers here. Older brothers, younger brothers, right? No way, you're not sitting in the front seat. I'm sitting in the front seat. I called shotgun and then they fight, right? How many of you had that experience as a sibling, right? Okay, now imagine it's that, but it's about your position in heaven, Imagine how well that goes. If you've ever played a card game or Monopoly with your family, okay, just take that energy, Monopoly, the game that divides households, ruins marriages, take that energy, put it at the Last Supper, right? And Peter's going, uh yeah, Andrew, you saw him first, but then he changed my name and said, I'm the rock. Booyah, Andrew, you suck. You can wash my feet in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, yeah. And then you got the sons of Zebedee over here who are like, I will literally call down lightning on you right now. I will smoke this whole table. I can do that. I've got God's ear. And Jesus, in the midst of all of this, he's got to be heartbroken right? He knows he's about to leave, and this is where they're at. They've seen him do all of this stuff. They've seen him touch lepers and hang out with prostitutes and go to the tax collector and redeem people in their, like, all over their community. People have been redeemed back into the kingdom, and the guys he's spending his time with have no clue what it's about, and he just gets up and he starts washing their feet, which are covered in animal dung, right? Their feet are filthy because they walk around in the street where all the animals walk around in the street. And, can you, and then Peter's response to this, of course, is like, oh, now I get it. No, Jesus, give me a shower. And he st- even then he's still getting it wrong. Right And so God, Jesus does not consider himself equal, even though he can be. He puts himself below, below the Father in submission. And then he puts himself below his disciples to wash their feet. And if you see where Jesus is, you know he's higher than you. So that means you're even below dirty feet. You're below Jesus, below dirty feet. That's where you are. And all of a sudden, I'm humiliated. I really am. Like I'm brought down. And he. That's where he hugs us. That's where he wraps us up. That's where he says. No matter what you've done. I will come and I will wash you. Hmm. And so it's impossible to worship him. And be exalted individually. It's impossible to worship this Jesus who puts himself below your dirty feet to lift you up. It's impossible to worship him and to be proud.
1: Oh.
2: you. Oh, I need you. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I'm here to make an announcement this morning, and um, I'm Cillan Aiken. I work part-time in the office here at Trinity. And um, I also have a ministry uh, with the Fresh Brewed Breakfast that I have been chairperson of for the last seven years. Um, it is an event that happens four times a year, And we have um, a speaker that shares her testimony. We have games. We have a wonderful catered breakfast. And it's always Christ-centered. There are about 100 ladies that come to that breakfast. And many of the ladies are not even from Trinity, but they're from all over Fairfield County. It's a huge outreach. It's a huge ministry. Well... The virus has struck. I have been in prayer for months as chairperson. How do I reinvent that huge gathering in that hall? Can't happen. We can't get together. Praying and praying and contemplating, you know, change happens. And there was no way that in my heart, and I tried to reinvent it. So through my prayers, seasons come and seasons go. And in my heart, I said, you know, I put my heart and soul into the seven years, and I think it's time to just pass it on. And there was such a peace in my heart. I knew it was from the Lord. So as I continue to pray. Little did I know that there was someone else praying to take it over. Which the Lord is so good all the time. He knew my heart because I didn't want it to go to sleep and I didn't want it to stop because it's such a great outreach to all the women. So I am excited. I am thrilled above and beyond for the change. The change is gonna happen. But we ladies are still gonna have fun. We're still gonna fellowship. It's still gonna be Christ-centered. And yes, we're gonna need your help with all of that. Everyone, I am excited, I am delighted that the sweetheart that was praying to take over the ministry is our own Kimby Russell, whose husband, by the way, was in my Sunday school class when I was teaching. So pretend that this is a baton, and I'm gonna pass the baton onto our own sweet, Kimmy Russell, as she excites you about how we're gonna do this. Yes.
4: <laughs> so Miss Celine, if anyone knows her, she is a woman who loves well in everything she does. Um, and I've seen that in women's ministry. I've seen it in her family. And even this past week, she and her husband celebrated 51 years of marriage. And we're just so thankful to see her serve this body, this community. Um, and we want to celebrate that. Um, and they are big shoes to fill. <laughs> and I will need grace and help. And I'm thankful to be under her mentorship. Um, so this fall we will be hosting a ladies bonfire we're switching it up so it's going to be november 14th at six thirty, 30 um, and it is a unique opportunity for fellowship it's different it'll be fun um, but it's going to be groups of eight ladies around bonfire pits in the back parking lot there will be anywhere from eight to twelve different pits um And it'll be a time to fellowship, a time to hang out, we'll have desserts, and it'll just be a great time. Um, There will be a small devotional, maybe some music, and we're just hoping that it'll be a great night. Um, So please encourage the women in your life to please come out. We'd love to see them there. sign ups. If you want to sign up for this event, they're online. If you go through our Trinity website under women, there's going to be an online form. And if you have any problems, any struggles, don't know how to do it, give us a call at the office and we'll walk you through it or sign you up ourselves. Um, And we're happy to do that. Um, And we're just really excited. So if you would just sign up and come on out. And our final announcement today, we still have Operation Christmas Child going on. um, And there's going to be a small video on the screen if you just turn your attention to that.
2: This year has been a pandemic year. Children are hurting all over the world. People are afraid. Families are scared. People have lost their jobs. They don't know where to go, what to do. They don't know what hope they have for the future. Well, I want every child to know that God loves them, that God has not forgotten them, and that he cares for them very much. And when you pack a shoebox and send it to Operation Christmas Child, it gives us an opportunity to give that box to a child and do it in Jesus' name. Can you just imagine the hope and the thrill and the joy when a kid opens up a lid like this and all these toys are in it? It's an incredible gift. And so I just want to say thank you. We need your help this year more than we've ever needed it because of the pandemic. This just going to create a lot more opportunity. Thank you, and God bless you. And remember, pray for the children of the world.
0: You know, it is a great opportunity for us to serve the gospel together. Operation Christmas Child is a great example of that, because it's not just a a box full of toys. It's the gospel message that's going out to these kids. And so uh, the boxes have already started to come in. If you haven't already grabbed one of those boxes on the way out, or you can uh, pack a box online, both are options. Uh, But, man, it's going to be exciting to think we are serving the gospel together, whether it's through Operation Christmas Child or through the Women's Bonfire, which... Uh, I may or may not try to sneak my way over there, although I'm sure Tar won't let me. Um, but it's, it's a, yeah, she just gave me the thumbs down. Uh, but it's, it, you know, there are ways that we as a community come together to worship God, but also to proclaim the gospel. And so I want to just encourage you to keep in mind ways that God is putting on your heart to give to the work of the gospel. Uh, we, we are collecting and gathering that in any one of Four ways here at Trinity, but hopefully it's all meant to further, in, further your worship of God and, and letting it be a place of generosity and, and giving to God with a glad heart. You can give online, you can give through the app, you can give through the generosity boxes here uh, in the sanctuary, or you can mail your check into the church office, and all of that will go to the work of the gospel here in Fairfield County and to the ends of the earth. Listen, as we are here together this morning, I hope that you know that I'm aware that God is doing a unique work in each of our lives, and that there are some of us here who, uh, who heard the message this morning, but still feel like I am, t- like they feel that they are too filthy for God to draw near to them. That's a lie, right? I want you to hear that clearly. That is a lie. There is nothing you have done or have not done, or there's nothing you have done that makes God repulsed by you. He loved you so much. He loved you to the fullest extent of love that he sent his son Jesus to come to this earth to sacrifice his life that he can be with you. So understand that the invitation is there before you to draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let him wash your soul with the love of Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Now, As we close our time, I want to encourage you to receive this benediction.